Dissonance Media and the Other Stories presents Step into the abyss of After the Gloaming, a gothic fiction podcast that delves into the depths of human emotion. Unyielding love, revenge, internal struggles, and restless souls await you in nine haunting episodes where dread, fear, and rare glimpses of eerie happiness linger. Dare to listen on your favourite podcatcher? After the gloaming beckons, search now, but beware, innocence will be left behind. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss these aren't the stories your mother told you no these are the other stories We've opened up our chart-topping, internationally recognised podcast to guest writers. Got a great idea for a story you think our audience will love? We'll get in touch and send it over. All the details for submissions are over at www.hawkandcleaver.com forward slash submissions. Once again, that's hawkandcleaver.com forward slash submissions. The Head is Removable by Ali Habashi Narrated by Alexandra Elroy Someone had hidden another human head in the museum. Maurice stalked through the shadowed displays past thieves and murderers and traitors, fascinating in their brutality. No eyelid fluttered, no chest swelled with breath, indeed no man among them moved at all. Such is wax. Marie herself was all movement, wide-eyed and disturbed. Her black skirts dragged behind her and her nostrils flared to catch the stench that had so permeated her childhood. It was the rot of revolutionary France, she thought. It was the terror. It was the severed heads of her employers and her friends. And she forced into creating death masks for the lot of them in order to prove her allegiance to the revolution. A futile effort in the end. Not even her great affinity for sculpting could scrub clean her former affluent associations. Even surrounded as they were by the potent dead, 
the revolutionaries could smell Versailles on her. Only the influence of her uncle had kept her from earning a death mask of her own. It had taken 30 years of travelling before her talent had proven its worth here in London. Yet even now, in her permanent wax figure exhibition, that hideous smell from her bloodstained childhood pursued her. Marie wondered if any of her customers had noticed that cloying death smell, if they had thought it a gruesome and entertaining addition to the Chamber of Horrors. She wondered if they had remarked upon it as they admired the sallow William Corder, the duo Burke and Hare, or indeed any of the other wax murderers that occupied this portion of her museum. A cold enveloped her as she neared the Revolutionary France exhibition, where a decomposing head might be discreetly displayed. Of all the places Marie had been, the people of London had been the most fascinated by the horrors she had carved, even more so than by their own Queen Victoria turned wax. It wasn't surprising, really, that the only thing more fascinated to London's populace than living English royalty was dead French royalty. Her steps stuttered. There was something smeared across the blade of the guillotine model. Was it paint? She stumbled back, supporting herself upon a wall for a moment. She must keep a hold of herself. It wouldn't do for her sons to find her having fainted in such a place. This was not the first time she had stood in the shadow of the guillotine. Marie slipped a hand beneath the lace fringe of her bonnet and tugged lightly at her greying hair. Still there, not shorn in preparation for a beheading as it had been before. Marie composed herself, and with a bravery very much forced confronted the guillotine's victims. There was a smudge of painted blood upon the pale cheek of the unfortunate Marie Antoinette. A line of the same red ran from the nose of her husband, King Louis XVI of France. Maximilien Robespierre, leader of the terror, was the bloodiest of the trio. A self-inflicted bullet wound to the side of his jaw carved deep into his waxen face. There were others set upon the same display. And Marie knew that there were still more back in France, where she had left the scant allies that remained to her after the revolution, along with her free-spending husband. She studied each face before her in turn. The most terrible part of discerning what is skin and what is wax, thought Marie, is that when someone dies they are the most like wax that they have ever been. Still, it was ridiculous that she should not be able to tell which head was the one that had once been living. The other two, discovered in the weeks before, had not been nearly so well hidden. It was the horror of the situation that had so distressed her as to add all her senses, she knew. Marie's continued refusal to summon the magistrate had no doubt put her in great peril, and yet she knew that to do so would be to put her very life and livelihood at risk. It was not the public's reaction to the scandal, three severed heads, merciful God, that disturbed her. Quite the contrary. The same population that paid extra to look upon the wax-carved faces of murderers might very well adore the notion that the Chamber of Horrors contained an added horror. And yet, upon whom would the blame fall for the murders themselves? Her eldest son, Joseph? Her youngest son, Francis? Herself? Might she have escaped the guillotine all those years ago only to feel a knotted rope tighten around her neck and the world fall out from beneath her? An unacceptable irony, 
she thought, to have one's neck left uncut by the French, only to have it broken by the English. Still, if these wicked offerings continued to appear as they had been, she would eventually be forced to send for help. A blowfly hummed past her ear, an emerald sheen to its bloated girth, and landed upon the nose of one of the severed heads. It had taken the place of Jean-Baptiste Carrier, this new head, and what most frightened Marie was not that it was there, but that she recognized its features. His name had been George Oliver. He was a drunk, amiable for the most part, who often spent time very near her establishment in order to panhandle. She had often chided her sons for slipping him the occasional halfpenny, as the attention had only caused George to bother her customers all the more. Now, upon looking at his face, Marie much regretted ever having thought him a nuisance. Lowering her eyes and covering her mouth with her hands, she breathed a prayer for poor George, and attempted to collect herself once more. Her whispered words to God died on her tongue, as she became aware of a faint shuffling behind her. Turning, slowly, Marie peered down the shadowed hall. The wax criminals were still, all but one. William Burke, the murderer famed for selling fresh cadavers for dissection, was stiffly clambering out of his exhibit, leaving his waxen partner behind. Marie, by contrast, was arrested with a stiffness of body and mind that paralyzed her so completely that she could only watch as a sculpture approached. This was impossible. This was unholy. The demonic aspect before her was constructed of wood and wax, with oil-paint features and glass eyes. His head and his hands were removable, able to be collected and repaired when need be, but, oh God, Still he moved, possessed by something terrible, something unknowable. William Burke stopped and lifted his eyes to hers. <sighs> Francois, Marie gasped. He was much changed, but she recognized him all the same, fully human and standing in for the vanished Burke. My letters, he rasped. You never replied to them. And why should I have? You have no right to... I have every right! He shouted. Irritation flared within Marie, and she pinched her lips together as she studied the husband she had left behind in France. His appearance was much like the recently decapitated George, swollen with drink. So you've drunk the last of your money, then? She asked coldly. He had the good grace to redden, although she supposed that too might have been the drink. We are wed, he replied. This museum, this museum is mine. Dark vitriol glittered in her words. You will not receive one penny from me or from this place. You have earned nothing. You are my wife. You are a parasite. Their row rattled through the chamber for the audience of glass-eyed criminals. I only want what is due. Francois was muttering now. Like a shouted warning, another blowfly drone passed Marie's ear. She swiveled her stare from her husband to George Oliver's head and back again. Francois. She started, and her steady voice did not match the quavering of her soul. What have you done? You never sent for the magistrate, 
he growled. You only smuggled them out with the wax heads. Did you think to frame me? She gaped, fury washing over her as she understood fully the horror that was playing out before her. Did you think to take my place? Francois took a step forward and his eyes were very dark. She made to dash past him, only to feel a large hand upon the crown of her head, and Marie yelped as her bonnet was ripped away. The white lace fluttered to the floor like a dying dove in a place of crows. Her husband's fingers tangled firmly in her naked locks. Struggling, Marie clawed desperately at the offending hand as it tugged her deeper into the chamber of horrors. Blowflies danced around them, blood-drop eyes suspended in a hideous spray. Her frantic cries for help became inhuman shrieks for mercy when she was forced to bow before the model of the guillotine. So frantic was her struggle that Francois was unable to restrain her neck within the circle of the lunette, so he pushed her down atop it. Marie shoved back against him and cried out before a blinding, sharp pain burst suddenly in her throat, and her scream was cut short. The first time Marie had seen the guillotine at work was in 1793, in the Place de la Révolution. It was the better way to execute criminals, the people had said. It was quicker than a hanging and less painful than an axe or a sword, which often took more than one stroke to sever the head from the body. The guillotine was humane. But the first time Marie had witnessed the national razor at work, she knew this praise to be untrue. The executioner and his assistant strapped the snivelling noble to the bascule and thrust his doomed head between the yawning curves of the lunette. Quivering body thus secured, the executioner grasped the dickly and freed the steel. The memory of that moment was one without sound, as though Marie had stuffed her ears with cotton to avoid it. The body slumped to the side as the head was raised from the basket and presented to the onlookers. Through the cotton quiet of the memory, one shocked scream rang out. Her own. And with a repulsion that would coat the back of her tongue from that day forward, Marie watched as the head's eyes fluttered open and fell upon her. Death itself was not fast enough to catch the razor. The soul persisted. And so it was with Marie. My head has been cut off, she thought numbly. She wondered absently if one of her sons would make her death mask. Marie yelped in surprise and pain as Francois nearly tripped over one of her feet. Her eyes snapped open, and all at once she felt the air rushing through her throat, blessedly whole. Francois had cuffed her so harshly on the back of the head that her neck had slammed forward into the top of the lunette. The razor itself still hung overhead, unmoved. Her husband was fumbling with the side of the guillotine, uncertain of how to release the blade, and Marie thought he must have used a knife for his other unfortunate victims to be this unsure. Bracing herself upon the instrument of her near death, she heaved herself backwards into the man who sought to divide her, but before Marie could even gather her skirts he was upon her once more. However, in that beat of silence she had heard something. It was the unmistakable double gait of her sons, sprinting towards them through the chamber of horrors, at last alerted by her resistance. She watched in fascinated shock as the man before her turned to face the children he had sired. If any man recognized the others, they did not show it. Instead, Joseph struck his father so hard that he fell back onto the guillotine. As Joseph reared back in surprise at his own violence, Francis shoved the astounded Francois back still further, 
so that he was fawned to lean against the lunette or else be struck once more. The razor waited. Marie's uncle had not only saved her from the guillotine, he had also effectively taught her all that she knew of wax. It was he who had guided her as she had crafted the features of Voltaire and Benjamin Franklin, and he who had encouraged her as she was ushered into Versailles. Even her chamber of horrors was based upon his wax portrait exhibition, The Cavern of Grand Thieves. Her uncle was her guide in all things. He was also not her uncle, only a teacher whom she had affectionately bestowed the title of family upon. And perhaps this was because, quite simply, her family did not consist of artists before she. They were soldiers, gravediggers, executioners. Marie's great talent with wax had been hard won, a practice in patience and gradually developed skill. It had nearly condemned her, it had indeed saved her, and eventually it had become her legacy here in England. Her talent was earned. But this, thought Marie as her fingers brushed the decree, this is innate. And with that, the razor awoke. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Other Stories. The Head is Removable was written by Ali Habashi, narrated by Alex Elroy, edited by Carl Hughes of music by Mayu and Tom Robson. Once again, we've opened up our chart-topping, internationally recognised podcast to guest writers. If you've got a great idea for a story and you think our audience will love it, get in touch and send it over. We're currently looking for submissions under the themes of doppelganger, war and superstition. So if any of those themes are getting your brain boxes moving, then get in touch over at www.hawkandcleaver.com forward slash submissions. Once again, that's hawkandcleaver.com forward slash submissions. Until next time.